You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. In the beginning, there was, well, an explosion. Or maybe it was a flash. Say cheese. Cheese. I mean, who knows really? It could have been a pop. Happy New Year. We can only guess what it was like. point is, to the best of our knowledge, it all got underway in an instant. The conventional view is that the universe began with what's called the Big Bang. The Big Bang is our current idea of how the universe began. All matter, all energy, all the stuff that would eventually be turned into stars, planets, galaxies, oceans, minerals, trees, animals, and humans traces its ancestry to the Big Bang. It is the scientific origin story. And this explosion took place, well, something like 14,000 million years ago. The idea that anything happened before the Big Bang is sort of inconceivable in many ways. That's the beginning of everything, the beginning of time, the beginning of space, the beginning of the universe. And to ask what happened before the Big Bang is, is just a pointless question. But is it pointless? And we aren't questioning the Big Bang, that this primordial explosion really happened, right? No, I'm not disputing any of that. I I certainly accept that that event did take place. But what I'm not accepting is that that's the whole story. Cosmologist Roger Penrose is not the only one who wonders what there was before the Big Bang. It's the ultimate prequel. I'm Seth Shostak, and welcome to Big Picture Science. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm imagining I'm looking up at the sky in the night and I see a beautiful starlit sky and I can think how far the stars are away. When astronomers look up into the sky, they see a sky filled with stars. There is something magnificent about the night sky. I've always felt that. The night sky is inspiring, but when astronomers or any stargazers look up, they may also ask, where did it all come from? I mean, not just the stars, but the stuff of the stars. Some of this we do have answers to. My name's Simon Steele. I'm an astronomer at Tufts University. The current idea of how the universe began leads to an idea that we call the Big Bang model. It seems that, from all the evidence, the universe began 13.7 billion years ago. Back then, the universe was this hot, dense fireball, almost like living inside the sun. Over time, the universe expanded and cooled so that galaxies and then stars and then planets could form. And eventually, some of the planets, at least one, developed life on it. And now those inhabitants are wondering whether that's all there is to our origin story. Or could it be that we're missing earlier chapters? Sean Carroll is a theoretical physicist at Caltech. Sean, we've come to accept the Big Bang as the origin of the universe. Is it a legitimate question to ask what was there before the Big Bang? 
Yeah, it's more than legitimate. It's a very good question. Uh, sometimes my cosmology colleagues talk as if we know that the Big Bang was the beginning of the universe. You'll hear things like asking what happened before the Big Bang is like asking what's north of the North Pole. But the truth is we just don't know. The Big Bang is not necessarily the beginning of the universe. It's the end of our understanding. Well, but does it have any meaning to say before since time is part of our universe, does, does it mean anything? I mean, it sounds like a semantic uh, difficulty there. No, it absolutely does mean something in certain scenarios. Uh, in classical general relativity, in the theory of gravity that Einstein invented, the Big Bang is a singularity past which we cannot go. But general relativity is not right. It doesn't take quantum mechanics into account. So almost everyone believes that ultimately general relativity is just an approximation to a theory of quantum gravity that we don't have yet. So it is very possible that the right theory of the universe is one in which there was time as well as space as well as universe even before the Big Bang. The truth is we just don't know. Now, Sean, one of the uh, compelling arguments for the fact that the Big Bang happened is what's called the Cosmic Microwave Background, or CMB, to avoid all those uh, syllables. Can you tell me what the CMB is? Yeah, the CMB is the leftover radiation from the early moments of the history of the universe when it was a hot, dense ball of plasma. I shouldn't say ball. It was a hot, dense plasma everywhere throughout space. And it was so hot that it was glowing, just like the uh, filaments on your oven glow when you heat them up. Uh, it was glowing very, very hot, and it was also opaque. And there was a certain moment, about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, when the universe cooled off just enough to become transparent. And then the radiation that was all bouncing around while it was opaque suddenly streams all the way to us here on Earth, and we see that as the cosmic background radiation. So it's kind of the leftover glow of this event 14 billion years ago. That's exactly right, and we can learn a lot about conditions back then by looking at the microwave background today. Now, Sean Carroll, and we'll hear more from him later, is saying that we can understand the conditions after the Big Bang or during the Big Bang by looking at the cosmic microwave background radiation? Well, a little bit of both. When you look at this CMB, you know, this fireball remnant, if you will, you're looking at the universe in a baby picture. You're looking at it the way it was when it was only 380,000 years old. Now, you might say 380,000 years is pretty old for a baby, but, you know, in a universe that's 14 billion years old, it, it really is early days. So it does tell you what the universe looked like right then, but it also carries remnants of what the universe was like before because the original conditions during the very earliest moments of the Big Bang clearly affected it 380,000 years later. It tells you about the moments right after the Big Bang and right before, but not before the Big Bang itself. No, it doesn't tell you anything about before the Big Bang. It merely tells you what conditions were like in a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang. Now, didn't some scientists get the Nobel Prize for discovering this cosmic microwave background radiation? They did. That was in the mid-1960s. And the funny thing about that is they weren't even looking for it. These were some engineers working at Bell Labs in New Jersey, and they were just trying to improve transatlantic phone call communication, really. Uh, but by accident, they built this big antenna. By accident, this antenna was picking up some noise that they couldn't get rid of that wasn't due to, you know, defects in the receivers. And in the end, they finally called up some uh, physicists at Princeton University, not too far away, and they said, you guys have found something important. You found the remnant glow 
of the Big Bang. You went to that university? I did. (laughs) I didn't know the guys who found the, the, the cosmic background radiation at Bell Labs, but I did know some physicists at Princeton who were looking for the same thing. And indeed, one of them, a guy by the name of David Wilkinson, I was his student. I was his first student, actually. He was in the physics department. And although I didn't really know much about it, he was building some equipment to do exactly what those guys at Bell Labs were doing. They were looking for this leftover glow. And one afternoon, my lab partner and I were doing a physics experiment, and we looked out the window. Down in there in the parking lot was Dave Wilkinson and some other physicists, and they had this antenna aimed at the sky. They were clearly doing something. Well, my lab partner and I, we didn't know what they were doing, but we thought we'd mess it up a little bit. <laughs> we, we moved a transmitter, microwave transmitter that we were using for our labs. We moved it to the window. We aimed it down into the parking lot, and I tapped out what hath God wrought in Morse code. <laughs> Hoping they'd pick that up? Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, a couple of months later, there's, you know, all these headlines about cosmic microwave background, whatever they called it back then, and these guys, you know, about to get the Nobel Prize. And, and I thought, gosh, we messed up the Princeton experiment. <laughs> We're responsible for something terrible. I asked Dave Wilkinson about that 20 years later, and he just laughed. He said, don't worry, you guys didn't do anything to us. So he said you did not screw up his experiment. That's what he said, yeah. Wilkinson, Wilkinson's name is on the microwave background radiation, isn't it? That's right. The instrument is called the uh, WMAP, Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Project. And that Wilkinson part is indeed my former advisor. All very interesting, but of course this doesn't tell you much about conditions before the Big Bang. No, but it does tell you how we understand what happened during the Big Bang. And once you get to a point in science when you have some understanding about an event, as we do about the Big Bang, then you start asking these other questions, maybe what happened before it? And that may seem like a very radical question to ask right now, and we're sort of shrugging our shoulders, not sure how to answer that. But there was a time when the idea of a Big Bang itself was a radical idea. Yes, back in the days when there was another cosmology The idea that the universe was eternal had always been here. So you didn't really need to ask the question what there was before the Big Bang or before the start of the universe because it didn't have a start. The idea that the universe, of course, was around forever was was a nice idea. And there's been the, the standard idea of cosmologists since the beginning of astronomy. Then the discovery was made in the late 20s that the universe was expanding that galaxies like our own Milky Way and the other galaxies were were moving apart from each other. So if the universe was expanding, that suggested that if you run the the movie backwards of the universe, then all the galaxies were were closer together. And at one point, if you go the whole way, they should be on top of each other. Uh, That suggests then that there was a time maybe when this whole thing started, when the galaxies started moving apart, when the universe was born. And suddenly this idea that the, the universe can be born, that the universe hasn't been around forever, that there was a moment in time when it came into being was a radical idea, and yet it was supported by the evidence. Who came up with the idea of the Big Bang? The idea of the Big Bang was probably a combination of, of many different scientists' ideas. It started off with Edwin Hubble, who, who was one of those who found that the universe was expanding. If we run the movie backwards so that all the galaxies and all the stars and everything is packed together tightly and you know everything's sort of hot and dense and, and bubbling and, and, and meshed together, then there should perhaps be evidence of this 
And that was actually discovered in the mid-60s by Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson. So these were two scientists who were working for Bell Labs. These were two scientists working for Bell Labs in New Jersey who stumbled across the glow, the afterglow of the Big Bang while they were doing their observations. Now, the idea that the universe could have had this fiery beginning was was outrageous to some scientists, including a, a brilliant cosmologist called Fred Hoyle, who disliked the idea that there was this fiery start to the universe so much, he gave it a nickname, and he called it the Big Bang. And as a term of derision, it actually stuck, and nobody has since thought of a better way to describe the hot origin of the universe. Thanks to astronomer Simon Steele for that story. Yeah, the discovery of the cosmic microwave background in the 1960s was uh, really a nail in the coffin for Fred Hoyle that really showed that it wasn't a joke, that the Big Bang really had happened, uh, that the universe wasn't always here and always would be. But there was another strong piece of evidence for a beginning, for a bang. Okay, can you give me a hint? Think balloons. Hot air? Well, that's close, but a different kind of balloon. <laughs> Helium, a helium balloon. Yes, that was actually the other nail in the coffin of the idea of Fred Hoyles that the universe had always been here, what he called the steady state idea. It's because if the universe had once begun as a tiny hot blob, a little Big Bang blob, then there should be a lot of helium in the universe. And you can understand that because that tiny blob would have resembled the inside of an H-bomb. And as everybody knows, H-bombs turn hydrogen into helium. So was the the Big Bang, in some sense, a, a huge nuclear explosion? Well, in the sense that the conditions in the Big Bang, at the very beginning of the Big Bang, you know, it had the same temperature, pressure, and composition as what you would find in the inside of an H-bomb. Okay, so the point is that that produced helium, and the universe now does have a lot of helium. It does. One quarter of the mass of the universe these days is helium. When we put helium into our balloons, is that helium that was produced during the Big Bang? Well, probably a lot of it was, yes. Maybe most of it. (laughs) So when astronomers found lots of helium in, in stars in the universe in general, they knew that the Big Bang was looking good. Okay. So we've established that the Big Bang happened. After all, we're all here. So no one's disputing that, but that still doesn't answer the question of what produced it or what happened before the Big Bang. Well, Sean Carroll says, we just don't know. But he has some ideas. We'll be hearing them next. One of them is the idea of a multiple universe or multiverse. That's right. Think lots and lots and lots of universes, each one with its own personality. So now you know what's coming after this on Before the Big Bang on Big Picture Science. Remember what you did yesterday? Frankly, it's a bit fuzzy for me. I'm I'm sure I must have gotten out of bed. But imagine trying to puzzle out the ultimate yesterday. You know, what happened before the Big Bang? Welcome back to Big Picture Science. Earlier, Sean Carroll laid out the idea of possible events before the Big Bang, but then he admitted, we don't really know what happened. However, that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of ideas floating around. And one that's been around and around and around is that of a cyclic universe. This would be a Big Bang followed by a Big Crunch, followed by a Big Bang, kind of like an accordion breathing in and out. Well, could this be an answer to what happened before the Big Bang? It's appealing, but it's not in vogue anymore. 
Sean, one idea that has been frequently floated by cosmologists was that the universe didn't just have a single beginning, that the universe might be cyclical. There's a big bang, and then one way or another, the universe comes back together, you know, in a big crunch, and and, and then you have a big bang again, and, you know, you just have this start-stop kind of scenario. Is that still fashionable at cosmology parties? Fashionable would be an exaggeration. <laughs> it is there. There's sort of a, a certain clique that hangs on to that idea of a cyclic cosmology, but it is certainly not the majority mainstream view. The majority mainstream view is actually not settled. There, there isn't really a dominant paradigm here. I personally like the idea of multiple Big Bangs, many different universes, what we would call packets of observable universe located scattered throughout the multiverse. But I don't think that they result from any kind of cyclic behavior. I believe in big bangs, but not in big crunches, to put it briefly. Well, would that suggest that what we call the universe and the big bang that uh, produced uh, what we're sitting in right now, that that was just sort of a local event and, if you will, an uninteresting suburb of some sort of meta-universe, that there have been lots of big bangs and some of them have produced interesting universes and others haven't, and we're just another event that happened to produce a a cosmos that we could uh, sit around and talk about. That's right. The Big Bang might just be something that is the kind of thing that happens from time to time. And nobody should be surprised if that turns out to be the case. It's yet another Copernican displacement of human beings away from being the center of the action. It's not only that we're not in the middle. It's not only that we're not made of the same stuff. It's that our observable universe is not even most of the action that is going on on the wider scales. Sean, uh, some important things that the Big Bang produced were particles, and there's one in particular that has been uh, important, the Higgs boson. It was finally found in the summer of 2012 at the Large Hadron Collider in Europe. Uh, You were there for the announcement. What was that like? Well, that was amazing. Uh, It was known to everyone around that this was going to be an extremely big deal. So the young physicists were literally camping out overnight in the hallway to get good seats in the lecture hall to be present at this historic occasion. And the older physicists, the 80-year-old physicists who played a part in inventing the idea of the Higgs boson, were also there and you know they became choked up afterwards. It was a very emotional moment. If you think about sitting down when you're a young graduate student or postdoc and applying your brain power to this difficult problem and coming up with an idea. And then 48 years later, you are told by the experimenters that your idea was right after all. It's a very moving experience. The Higgs boson is said to give other particles mass. Now, my suspicion, and indeed my experience at low-grade parties, is that most people have no mental idea, they have no mental picture of how some particle, call it Higgs, call it Bob, whatever you call it, how that can give other particles mass other than by maybe glomming onto them. How do you explain how the Higgs boson works? Well, clearly you need to get invited to better parties, Seth. That's really the only thing that I can tell you. Come down here to Pasadena. Well, uh, you know, there's plenty of people who understand the Higgs boson just wandering around the streets. My, what a, that is a better place. <laughs> and I think that the crucial ingredient here is the idea that it's actually not the Higgs boson that gives particles mass. The reason the Higgs boson is interesting is because it's the vibration in a field called the Higgs field. And it's the field that is doing all the work. It's a field pervading space, an invisible energy field that is everywhere in the observable universe. And particles like quarks and electrons and muons are all moving through this field. 
And it's the impact of that field interacting with these particles that turns them from massless particles moving at the speed of light to particles that have mass and can slow down and can make atoms and molecules and life. Well, what would the universe have been like without the Higgs? Suppose the, the Higgs didn't exist. Could there have been a universe without a Higgs? There would have been a universe, but you wouldn't have wanted to live there because you couldn't have lived there because we'd have the same elementary particles that we observe today, like quarks and electrons and so forth. But the electrons in particular, the particles that are responsible for all of electricity, not to mention all of chemistry, because they're what bond different atoms together, the electrons would all be moving at the speed of light which means they couldn't make atoms, which means that there could not be complex, interesting structures. You just had these electrons zipping through space, minding their own business, but they would not come together in a sociable way to form interesting things like you and me. Does, does the Higgs boson have any role in understanding uh, what happened before the Big Bang? Probably not before the Big Bang, to be very honest. Uh, that's a question for gravity and quantum gravity. And even though the Higgs field helps give mass to particles, it doesn't play any direct role in gravity. It does play a very important role in the first tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang, because the Higgs field went from being zero to being some non-zero number even in empty space. That's a phase transition throughout the universe that changed what the particles were doing and helped put us in the situation we're in now. Well, Finally, Sean, physicist Stephen Hawking has uh, famously said that philosophy is dead. You don't need philosophers to sit around drinking beer and answering questions or trying to answer questions, such as why are we here or what's the nature of reality. Scientists can now answer those questions. Is he right? Well, no one likes sitting around drinking beer and thinking about the universe more than Stephen Hawking does. So I think that uh, he's smart enough that he knows how to market his books. And he knew that saying that philosophy was dead would be a good way to get attention. And I know what he's trying to say, but it's an extremely unfair characterization of a whole field of human inquiry that is very, very far from being dead. Most of physics, most of science gets along perfectly well without any input from philosophy. But the foundational questions, questions of what is quantum mechanics, why is there an arrow of time? Some very, very important questions are ones where philosophers and scientists work very much hand in hand with each other. And I think that's an important part of the intellectual liveliness of our discipline. Sean Carroll, thanks for talking with me. Sure, my pleasure, Seth. Sean Carroll theorizes about physics at Caltech, and he also writes books about it, the most recent being The Particle at the End of the Universe. So there's a lot that we know about the Big Bang and the first tiny fraction of a second after it took place, a period called inflation, a faster-than-light rapid expansion of space after that initial explosion. Oh, and before you get all worked up about that faster-than-light part, remember, space can do that even though matter can't. What does that mean, space can do that? I thought nothing could go faster than the speed of light. Yeah, well, it turns out that space can expand faster than the speed of light, but you can't have matter moving at faster than the speed of light or communicate information faster than the speed of light. Don't worry. It's all okay with Al Einstein. But what is space if not matter? I mean, there's some particles or something there, and they must be moving faster than the speed of light if space is moving faster than the speed of light. No, the the, the space can expand. The, The particles do not move faster than the speed of light relative to one another. It's odd. It's true. Okay, well, this is mind-bending, so we need some answers. Now, someone out there must have some ideas about what the condition of the universe was before that big flash. 
My name is Andrei Linde. I am a professor of physics at Stanford. I study the origin of the universe and the way how it looks at the grand scale. Perfect. Andrei, you tell us what happened before the Big Bang. I do not quite answer this question. I am honestly saying that we don't really know. Sure you know. Come on, anything. I mean, what might have happened before that bang heard round the cosmos? Well, we cannot pretend that we know the answer. Well, okay, let's try something else. We don't know what happened before the Big Bang, so let's look at what happened after. I mean, we know there was a bang and a period of something, some very, very rapid expansion that we call inflation. Now, one of the things you work on, Andre, is eternal inflation, which is kind of different than that initial inflation. I mean, if I can use a sort of convoluted metaphor, imagine our universe, the one we've always talked about as a baby being born and a big bang, having a growth spurt that we call inflation. But when you ask, what was there before our universe, the answer to that is other babies, other big bangs that went off a long time ago, maybe infinitely long time ago. All right. So that leads to this idea of a multiverse, the multiverse being the fact that they're just a whole series of babies, a whole series of big bangs. We heard Sean Carroll mention that earlier. So that's the idea of multiple big bangs all blowing up in a kind of meta universe. So is the idea that babies have been going off in the universe over and over and over all over the place. And so that suggests we don't have to ask what happened before Big Bang because there never was a before because there's always been Big Bangs, there's always been babies. Yeah, well, there was a before, but the, the before had other babies, yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, 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 and by the way, according to Andre Linde, the babies spawn other babies, which is kind of good for the metaphor, right? In other words, one universe causes a Big Bang to make another universe, and all of this is taking place in a kind of meta-universe, a okay. multiverse. Okay, but he doesn't use the baby metaphor. That's just your metaphor, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, okay. that's my baby. All right. But, but I'm kind of interested in the baby that's become me, okay? Our universe. Is it likely to expand forever? Is it destined to become infinitely large? The universe might. However, we're trying to say that even if we start with a finite universe and then we let it go and it start exponentially expand, it becomes practically infinite. And if it continues doing this for an infinitely long time, it becomes really infinite. But for us, it will not be very much different whether it's really infinite or practically infinite. It will be much larger than what we can see in the largest possible telescope. Well, what we can see, we can see things, you know, tens of billions of light years away. And when we make pictures that show galaxies tens of billions of light years away, I mean, it all looks pretty much like the galaxies around here. I mean, they're, they're younger because we're looking back in time. But, you know, the universe looks pretty much the same no matter where you look. It's somewhat uniform. Is this likely to be true throughout the universe? Or could it be that we would enter sort of like crossing the border in Europe to a different country mm -hmm. where they speak a different language and the physics is a new language, if you will? The answer to this question is kind of paradoxical. For many, many years, we were trying to explain why we see the same galaxies to the right and to the left of us at large distance, and we could not come to any answer. So eventually we found the possible answer which was given by inflationary theory. Now, the same theory which explains for the first time why our universe looks so uniform, it predicts that at a very large scale it must be 100% non-uniform. How exactly non-uniform it is depends on the fundamental theory underlying our knowledge. For example, in string theory, which is considered to be 
the best candidate for theory of everything. Well, in this string theory, we may have a billion of a billion of a billion of a billion, and I should repeat this sentence like maybe several minutes, types of different universes with different low energy laws of physics. So yes, we can have red universe and blue universe and whatever other colored universe with different laws of physics, but they most probably are so far away from us that we will never see. But you're speaking of of one universe, one universe that has many, many regions, regions that are so large that if you're in one of them, maybe you don't ever see the other regions. But is that a different idea than the thought that there might be multiple universes, completely separate universes like like bubbles in a bathtub? Yeah. There are two versions of uh, the same idea. But when we're talking about really separate universes, it's a bit difficult to explain what we're talking about. It's a very quantum mechanical concept, very non-intuitive. What we are trying to do is just to develop something which is more tangible, something which nevertheless leads to practically the same conclusions. So if not for different universes existing separately in we don't know where and how, we instead of that we say that the universe is just made out of very large different countries. And each country looks, because it's so large, looks from inside like a separate universe, not caring about existence of other parts with totally different properties. You mentioned that the number of these uh, different countries, if we can stay with that metaphor for a moment, might be incredibly large, a, a number that uh, even to speak the number takes takes minutes, as you suggest. Uh, not all of these universes are going to be as hospitable to something like life, for example, as our own, I assume. That, that's right. Uh, for example, in string theory, you may have universes which are 10-dimensional and universes which may be three-dimensional and the universes which are four-dimensional, meaning three spaces and one time. Life, as we know it, requires existence of planetary systems and atoms they can exist only in a four-dimensional universe. Once again, three dimensions plus time. So our universe is special. Is that just an accident, or is it just a consequence of the fact that we're having this conversation? We are trying to use to explore the possibility that it's just a correlation, that we can live in some parts of this huge multiverse. And this correlation between us and the properties of these parts determine in which parts we live and in which parts some other people, other things, other animals, other automata can live. This is what is called entropic principle. Before invention of inflation and, well, this recent progress in string theory, it was very difficult to talk about these things seriously. It was like journal journalist gimmick. It's if you do not have any good idea, any good solution, then you will say, oh, yeah, but otherwise we would not be around. But it was like a philosophical uh, escape route without physical ground to it. Once we learned that it's possible actually really inside the same universe have parts with different properties, and these parts are huge, and for all practical purposes they look like separate universes, then the question why we can live in some part of the universe and cannot live in another and what is correlation between us 
and the universe, this question acquires some meaning. I must say, and this is uh, perhaps paraphrasing a statement made by Blaise Pascal many centuries ago, but uh, the, the, the idea of this multiverse I find terrifying, the enormous spaces that this encompasses. But on the other hand, perhaps I should feel special because you're telling me I happen to be living in one of the good parts of the multiverse. There is no good and there is no bad. There are parts which are suitable for you and the parts which are not suitable for you. Everything is relative. Andre Linde, thank you so much for talking with me. Not at all. It was a pleasure. Andre Linde is a physicist at Stanford University. Coming up, more cosmology, why an eternal universe is maybe just not possible. Any more baby metaphors coming up? I just want to be prepared. I, I, I may be at the end of the baby metaphors. <laughs> but first, why we're compelled to create a narrative of our origins in the first place. Humans are storytelling animals. It's Before the Big Bang on Big Picture Science. The Big Bang is the scientific origin story. It even trumps evolution, you could say, because it gives us a narrative of how everything came into being. And a dramatic one at that. It has to be the biggest discovery of all time, that the universe had a beginning. I mean, you know, I mean, isn't that incredible? That there was a moment when there was absolutely nothing, and in the next moment, time, space, matter, and energy all burst into being and began expanding and cooling. Isn't that the most incredible idea in the history of science? Marcus Chown is a science writer, and we'll hear more from him about another wrench thrown into this whole what happened before the Big Bang matter. But his description of the Big Bang as a compelling story gives some hint as to why we're so drawn to understanding exactly how it unfolded, how the Big Bang set off inflation, how stars, galaxies, and our world came into being, whether the universe had a beginning and what existed before that beginning. It's a story that matters to us, says English professor Jonathan Gottschall, because he points out that, you know, as social animals, stories bring us together. The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human, is the title of his book. What's a story for? A story is something that we use to organize our experience, to bring meaning and coherence to the chaos of life. That's what a good scientific theory does. It organizes chaos. It organizes data points. It arranges them into a story that we can understand. What you're saying is that if, if the scientists, if the cosmologists were just to present us with the data of, I don't know, all the, all the protons and the energy that was created at the beginning of the universe, it might be hard for us to get our heads around it. But when you have the Big Bang, you have an organizing principle in the form of a story that makes it more compelling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, but in your book, you write that what makes a good story is a story that has suspense or a naughty problem, you know, that has to be solved. Does the Big Bang have either of those? Yeah, I think at some point the sort of analogy breaks down a little bit between stories in terms of, you know, fiction stories and, and stories in terms of this scientific theory. So, yeah, the big thing that a theory like the Big Bang is missing or the theory of evolution is missing is an actor is a character who's going to struggle against obstacles to get what they want. That tends to be the, the sort of universal structure of human storytelling. And it may account for a lot of the skepticism you get in the general public about a theory like the Big Bang, about the theory of evolution, is that we have sort of a mind design that's designed to sort of soak up and cotton on to a certain kind of story. And in some respects, these scientific theories 
don't exploit that mind design. <laughs> they don't exploit it. That may be true, but some scientists may say it is actually built in. If you look at the story of evolution, you have all these creatures, mm-hmm. and each one of them has a very naughty problem, Absolutely. which is yeah. <laughs> how to yeah. carry their genes on to the next day. So there That's are right. all these struggling creatures that are trying to make it on this planet. So it's That's actually, a good point. That's it actually a good point. is fraught with suspense. Absolutely. That's very true. That's very true. We still don't know how the story is going to end. But it sounds like what you're saying is maybe scientists haven't done a great job of telling the story that's behind the work that they're doing. They're, they're very good at presenting the data points, but maybe they're not very good at telling the story. Yeah. I, some are and some aren't, I think. Some are masters of it. You know, uh, someone like Richard Dawkins or Stephen Pinker or other great scientists who are doing a wonderful job of popularizing, of bringing these big ideas, this sort of abstract thinking, and making it very concrete and very powerful and very story-centric for a general audience. Some are doing a great job. And you write that we are primates that have storytelling minds. Can you describe how we are awash in stories? It's not just bedtime stories, which is probably the first model that comes to mind when we think of stories, but we actually are telling stories to each other all day long. How so? Yeah, I I think we live inside a a storm of stories, inside a sea of stories, and we're not always aware of it. It's sort of like, you know, the fish isn't aware of the water. We're not aware of the stories that we're moving through all day long. So, you know, we have fiction. We have novels and films and TV, and we spend about five hours a day with that, and there's popular songs that we spend several hours a day with, and those those tend to be story-based. We have daydreams, about eight hours per day, where we're making up these little fictions in our head. We go to sleep. And at night, the body takes its rest, but the brain stays up all night long telling itself stories. Uh, And so if you start adding up all the time we spend in make-believe imaginary universes, we spend more time in those make-believe worlds than we do in the real world. And that's why I say that as good a definition of humanity as any is that we are the storytelling animal. You, You write that we're awash in stories, of course, the newscast and any form of news writing is actually a story. It's a narrative of the events that happened that day. So that may be another example of a story that we're drawn to. And some people may call that fiction, depending on what side of the divide you're on. Mm -hmm. Um, But you write specifically about fiction and how we're drawn to fiction, and that on the face of it, it doesn't seem practical to make up stories that aren't based on facts (laughs) that we can use. And yet we do it all the time, and we're drawn to it. Does fiction have a biological purpose in our lives? Yes. I think this is one of the sort of great, outstanding evolutionary riddles that's been hiding in plain sight for a long time. We haven't been aware of it as a riddle because, again, we're just in story all the time, and so we don't notice how, how it saturates our lives. But, you know, if you want to explain, like, why humans have sex or why humans eat, it's obvious. You know, there's an obvious biological answer. But our addiction to fiction is not obvious. And so I think a a good place to start this is is to look at your own hand and to to kind of wiggle your fingers in front of your face and to ask yourself this basic biological question, what's your hand for? And you'd say, well, obviously my hand is for reaching out and grabbing stuff, and obviously it's for waving around in the air and helping me uh, communicate, and it's obviously for reaching out and caressing people, and it's obviously for making fists and punching people. It's for a lot of different things. It's not like a single-purpose tool. It's like a multi-purpose tool, like a, like a Swiss Army knife. So the hand was shaped by multiple evolutionary forces to do multiple evolutionary jobs. 
And we don't know for sure what the evolutionary purpose of storytelling is. This work has just begun. But I think the answer is going to be just as complicated. That story was formed by different evolutionary forces to do different evolutionary jobs. Now, one theory I spend a lot of time with in the book, uh, this is sort of a theory that people from the sciences and people from the world of scholarship and the humanities have been sort of converging on, is this idea that fiction may serve as a virtual reality simulator. So in the same way that a pilot gets into a flight simulator and tries to experience all the problems that he might face in a real plane, we go into fiction for the same reasons, to go into a world where we get to practice on the big dilemmas of human life, and we don't die at the end. You know, we get to imagine what it would be like to confront a powerful man or to seduce someone's spouse. And we get better at engaging in real-world social intercourse without the risks of it. You also write that if, if you go into a movie theater and you don't watch the movie, but you, when the lights go down, you turn around and look at the audience. Now, you mm-hmm. don't want to spend too much time doing this, so they'll think you're strange. <laughs> um, but if you look at their faces, you'll see people laughing and crying, and, and they're all reacting together. So it says something about us being drawn to shared experiences, does it? Yeah, yeah, there's actually neat neuroscience on this too, you know, so they hook people up to the brain scanners and they expose them all to the same stories. Their brains are literally in sync. They're lighting up in the same ways. They're having a completely tuned up psychological response, neurological response, physiological cues, everything's in tune. So story has this incredible power to attract people and to draw us together around a story and to draw us together around the sort of values that are being portrayed in the story. Jonathan Gottschall, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Jonathan Gottschall teaches English at Washington and Jefferson College in western Pennsylvania and is the author of The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. Okay, well, to complicate the story, we return to Marcus Chown. Marcus is a science writer and cosmology consultant for New Scientist magazine. And it should come as no surprise that the magazine has a cosmology consultant. But what it needs, maybe, is a cosmology therapist, because this Big Bang story just got thornier. Well, to summarize what we've heard so far, our universe, what we call our universe, clearly had a beginning, a Big Bang. No one's disputing that. But there might have been something before that bang, perhaps a multiverse where eternal inflation was creating Big Bangs all the time, and ours is just one of those. We're just the latest bang on the block, maybe not even the latest. Okay, that's all what we heard from Andre Linde, that some sort of meta-universe is forever producing Big Bangs. This suggests that the meta-universe has been around forever. Right. So before the Big Bang, there were other Big Bangs, the meta-universe, and that process has been going on without beginning and without end. If so, then the answer to the question, what was there before the Big Bang, is to say that there were other Big Bangs stretching back, well, forever. But science writer Marcus Chown has written recently in New Scientist about researchers who are uncomfortable with the concept of an infinite history. Alex Valenkin and Audrey Mithani suggest there had to be a beginning to the multiverse. I mean, the standard picture is known as inflation, and, and basically it begins with this stuff called this inflationary vacuum. The vacuum that we think of as empty space is actually full of energy. In the modern quantum picture, it's full of energy. Well, this inflationary vacuum is like a souped-up, even more energetic vacuum, and it has a really amazing property. It's got repulsive gravity. So once you get this, this vacuum, it begins to expand, and it's got a second amazing property. As it expands, it creates more of itself. If you imagine this inflationary vacuum expanding everywhere, 
Well, occasionally, bits of it decay into normal vacuum. So you get these bubbles. And these bubbles are our Big Bang universes, and we live in one of them. It turns out that the inflationary vacuum expands so fast that it's created faster than it can be eaten away, you know, faster than it can decay into these bubbles. So once it starts, it goes on forever. So people thought, if inflation is eternal into the future, surely it must be eternal into the past as well. But actually, it turns out that Alex Belenking at Tufts University and a few others proved some, a, a theorem which shows that in any inflating universe, you have to have a beginning. There has to be a moment when it started. So we're back to square one, really. I mean, we thought the Big Bang was the beginning, uh, and that was a bit of a problem because we, we then had to ask what happened before. We now know that what happened before is inflation, but inflation itself as a beginning. So we're, we're kind of back to square one. Well, when you say back to square one, what you mean is the obvious question will be, well, what was there before that first inflationary period, I presume? Well, interestingly, all we need is a very, very small patch of inflationary vacuum, tiny, tiny patch just to exist. Once it exists, it begins expanding and it creates everything we see around us. And quantum theory, which is our very best theory of the microscopic world, does allow stuff to pop into existence out of nothing. So conceivably, there was absolutely nothing. And then out of this nothing, the laws of physics conjured like a rabbit out of a hat, a tiny patch of disinflationary vacuum. Thereafter, the universe expanded and, and, and we were born and whatever. The problem you then face is you've actually changed the question of what happened before the Big Bang or what happened before inflation into another question. Where did the laws of physics come from? Because actually you need the laws of physics, the laws of quantum theory, to actually make something appear out of nothing. So that's a kind of a different question. Right, right. So okay, <laughs> what, what produced the laws of physics? Well, you know, Sean Carroll, when we asked him what was there before the Big Bang, he says, well, we don't know. And part of the problem, as he saw it, was that we don't have enough physics to actually address this question. We need what's called a quantum theory of gravity to to solve these problems. Do you think that despite what, for example, Alex Falenkin and others have said, that they really know enough physics to be able to to say, look, there had to be a beginning somewhere, some initial inflation (laughs) that started out of nothing? We don't know enough physics. I mean, that's the truth. However, there are certain observations that we can make of the universe which tell us that something like inflation had to have happened. For instance, bits of the universe which are today on opposite sides of the sky, so 180 degrees apart, at the time, in in the early Big Bang, they were not in contact with each other. You know, no signal could have gone between them, so no heat could have been transferred between them. Yet when we observe these points on opposite sides of the sky and opposite sides of the universe, we see they have exactly the same temperature. And that tells us that very, very early on, the universe had to have expanded faster than light. So those bits of the universe we think could never have been in contact were actually closer together early on. So there must have been this super expansion very, very early on. That's one possibility, and that, that is what inflation provides, because the expansion of the universe is faster than light, incredibly, in inflation. There are a few other possibilities, but, but really something like inflation has to have happened. But you're absolutely right. When we look at the details of inflation, it turns out that we don't really have enough physics. And, and although inflation was proposed in 1980, 1981, we still do not understand the microscopic physics. And it's still based on, you know, stuff that we, we, we don't really know. What about the possibility, and I, and I believe that Valenkin agrees with this, 
that the, if you will, the beginning of the beginning, I mean, you know, this initial inflation that got all this bubbling meta-universe going, that that's so far back in time, you might as well say that the universe or all these universes has existed forever. I mean, how far back in time could we be talking about here? Well, that's the interesting subtlety because Vilenkin has proved that inflation and even the alternative ideas about what happened before the Big Bang, they all have to have a beginning. But a physicist called Leonard Susskind, he has actually then come back and proved that actually, even though the universe had a beginning, it is so far back that it's very, very unlikely there will be any relic, any fossil that we can observe. So in other words, although the universe had a beginning, it's so far back that it effectively is infinitely far back. So it's kind of compatible with the universe not having a beginning. When you say how far back, that is a real problem because as far as we know, space and time were created in the Big Bang. So when we're talking about this epoch before, we can't even use the concept of time. So I don't know how to answer your question, how far back was the beginning before the Big Bang. There there, there are no clocks to measure it. I have to say, as is usually the case in discussions of modern cosmology, all this is enough to twist your brain into knots. But I mean, we, we we can bang ourselves over the head about this, but we've come such a long way. I mean, before the discovery of the Big Bang, I mean, ideas of the origin of the universe, they were the preserve of religion. You know, we, we've created a science, and it's testable. You know, I mean, the reason that everyone gave up on the steady-state theory is because it predicted something we didn't observe. It predicted that as we look back in time, and when we look at across the universe, light takes a long time to get to us, we see the universe at earlier ages, the universe should always be the same. But the observations showed that it wasn't that the early universe was very, very different to today. So it completely contradicted the prediction of the steady state theory, and that's why we have the Big Bang. So these theories, you may say, well, they they don't tell us much, but they actually tell us an awful lot more than we knew before. Marcus Chown, thank you so much for talking with us. Great. I enjoyed it. Marcus Chown is a science writer and cosmology consultant for New Scientist magazine in London. In summary... Well... All right. I mean, we still haven't really definitively answered the question, what was there before the Big Bang? We've been talking about the multiverse, uh, this eternal inflation idea that, you know, there have just been Big Bangs spawning other Big Bangs going back maybe forever, maybe not forever. But I, I do want to point out that that's not the only idea that's currently kind of popular. There's this idea that in string theory, there are these brains that are bouncing against one another, producing universes all the time. There's another idea called the emergent universe, where you have a little tiny, tiny little thing, and and occasionally it blows up and produced our universe. These are all alternative ideas about what there was before the Big Bang. The jury's still out. But it seems that no matter what theory you put forth about what happened before the Big Bang, it always begs the question, what happened before that? Particularly if Valenkin and Mithani are right when they say there has to have been a, a, a sort of an ultimate beginning. Yes, because indeed, that makes you ask, what was there before that? Well, I'm glad we could settle this question after an hour of debating it. The answer is, we don't know the answer. That's the answer. 
Thanks to our cosmically talented production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. They help us go out each week with a Big Bang. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to Before the Big Bang. And you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because it gives you more Big Bang for your big buck, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show.